Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Mega billionaire Elon Musk made headlines last week when he announced he would attempt to purchase Twitter, offering more than, uh, I think it was $54 per share for a total of nearly $43 billion. In response, Twitter had kind of a defensive plan that would make Musk's plan more expensive and less likely. The question is, though, what would happen uh, if Musk or others uh, were to succeed in purchasing the social media giant? What's the problem uh, to which a Musk takeover would be the solution? Joining me right now to discuss this and related matters is Rachel Bovard, senior tech columnist at The Federalist and senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. She has more than a decade of policy experience in Washington, has served in both the House and Senate in various roles, including as legislative director and policy director for the Senate Steering Committee, under the chairmanships of Senator Pat Toomey and Senator Mike Lee. She also has served as Director of Policy Services for the Heritage Foundation. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel Bovard, B-O-V-A-R-D, and visit cpi.org. Rachel, good to have you back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Uh, first of all, um, what did, uh, do we know what Musk's intention was in you know, making this bid for Twitter? Well, all we know is is through a series of tweets that he's put out over the last several weeks, which seem to indicate that he is concerned about Twitter as a you know digital public square and the content moderation practices that Twitter uh, employs limiting access to that public square. So in an interview he gave, I think it was last week, it was actually a TED Talk interview, you know, he basically said, look, I'm most concerned about Twitter as a nexus of free speech in America. And he said specifically, the economics don't concern me at all. So this doesn't seem to be a project for him to make money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it seems to be more about restoring free speech to a platform that he thinks lacks that access okay. right now. What are the most egregious instances of Twitter's um, hampering free speech? Well, I think the one that immediately comes to mind is the fact that they've permanently banned, uh, you know, former President Donald Trump, but they did so yeah. when he was a duly elected president of the United States, and yet they yeah. continued to allow, you know, other heads of state on their platform. Yeah, I know. That's just unbelievable. Um, I mean, this is, they must have known that by blocking uh, former President Trump, that they were, in fact, alienating, you know, must have alienated lots of users, right? I mean, he, you know, Donald Trump was duly elected back in 2016, and a lot of people voted for him, and a lot of people voted for him in 2020. What was the, what was the sense of Twitter, uh, you know, stopping him? I, I don't get it. What, what did they really expect to gain? Well, I think, you know, it's ideological narrative control for Twitter. And I think, you know, this is something Musk has talked about and that I've written about as well, is that Twitter, even though it is the smallest of the social media platforms, it has this outsized influence on controlling what the country talks about. Mm -hmm. News begins and ends on Twitter. It's where, you know, a lot of the sort of mainstream media calls its stories. It's where elites talk to one another. It really does shape the national dialogue, which is, you know, 
it, it punches above its weight class in that regard, given its size. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for Twitter to ban sitting politicians, they really are taking them out of the discourse. They're taking them out of the political public square. And that has a huge impact, I think, on elections, on the ability to reach voters, on, you know, all kinds of things. And I think Twitter, you know, the Twitter employees, and and this is a a fact that, you know, Musk brings up a lot, I think are much more interested in sort of controlling what can be said on their platform, shaping the narrative themselves than they are, you know, just creating a platform for, for ideas to sort of clash and clang in the public square, which is what you think about when you think traditional you know, of traditional free speech platform. That's true. That's true. Uh, does Musk have a history of being uh, kind of a libertarian champion of free speech? You know, it's, a, I think, a new area of interest for him. I mean, it may be something he's always been passionate about, but obviously we know him more from <laughs> his work on electric cars, right? Sure. And Tesla and and you know, SpaceX and going to Mars. And we know him much more for his feats of engineering than we do him as a free speech warrior. Uh, but he, you know, and I don't personally know where he stands as a political matter on a lot of these issues. I suspect he's sort of an old school classical liberal, which, yeah. you know, means all ideas, right, should be right. shared in the public square and, and let him duke it out. Right, right. Uh, this uh, this uh, uh, purchase attempt uh, and Twitter has responded to it. Uh, is has Musk said he had a plan B? Do we know what his plan B would be? He hasn't been specific about it, although he it, it, he does seem to have hinted at potentially making a tender offer. Uh, it also looks that he, like he may have some partners. Uh, that he would bring on board in a in a bid. It looks like um, Apollo Global, which is, uh, I believe, another hedge fund, it may be interested in joining him. So, you know, many of us speculated, you know, because Elon Musk is so mercurial, mm-hmm. <laughs> that his plan B might just be to dump his stock and walk away, which I still think is a possibility. Uh, but it does seem like, at least now, he's hanging in there uh, to try and make a, a different kind of offer. That again, you know, the Twitter board has a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders. So yeah. this is not something they can just simply walk away from. They're going to have to justify their decisions to the SEC. And, you know, the more Musk ups the ante, the more difficult I think it's going to be for the board to just simply ignore him. Yeah. yeah. Does he remain the largest uh, shareholder? He does not, actually. He's now okay. the second largest shareholder. You saw Vanguard, who is one of the country's biggest asset managers, uh, step in and buy a 10.3% stake in the company. Okay. So now they own about a, a percentage more than Musk does. And I think that was intentional on Vanguard's behalf. Hmm. Very interesting to see what the political ramifications of that would be. Why would Vanguard want to put themselves into a politically volatile situation like this? It's not normally what, uh, you know, a big, big... Investment uh, uh, giants do. What are they concerned about? Well, I would about? actually dis- I would disagree with that. Go ahead. You see yeah. the asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard. They institute they're institutional investors that own a lot mm-hmm. of of many different corporations, and they are activist investors. I mean, BlackRock in particular, Larry Fink, uh, famously progressive, push has pushed the you know ESG movement on many many companies. And Vanguard in particular, people don't think about it this way, uh, but they are they are equally as woke in some capacity. So I do think that that may I'm completely speculating, but it may have been done 
at the behest of some of Twitter's board members to say, look, we don't want this Elon Musk character yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be our biggest shareholder. You know, the, the asset managers control billions of dollars and are really the only people that can play at Musk's level. Yeah. So I do think that there's a little bit of politicking going on here. Yeah, okay. Uh, when you have... Is it, is it that the these are different than older style um, uh, business leaders who wanted to maintain stability because stability is better for business and controversy makes it difficult to predict the future. These seem to be activists, as you say. They have a progressive woke mentality. Do they really believe that the American people are... Uh, are eventually will go this way that they'll applaud this kind of thing. Well, I think that they realize the American people are a captured audience. Um, you know, they every time there has been an alternative uh, that's even gotten nearly successful or nearly competitive with Twitter. I'm thinking specifically of Parler. Right. It you know it was nuked from space. Right. <laughs> All of the um, the the gatekeepers in the digital economy acted against Parler, Amazon, Google, Apple, and I suspect they will do the same to Truth Social if Truth Social, uh, which is the Trump alternative Twitter platform, becomes successful at all. So I think that they know that they are the only game in town. They know that the American people are captured on their platform, and they know that people you know, like me, for instance, who write and speak and commentate for a living have to access the platform as a means of you know, promoting our work. And they know people will keep coming back because of those network effects. So I don't think that they feel at all threatened. <laughs> yeah. They know people are, they have a captured audience. So, but, it, but what it does mean, it, if I, the way I would read this, it means that they're convinced that their, their victory stands solely on the platform of power rather than truth. That's right. I mean, all of this is about narrative power and yeah. control. Yep. Um, you know, that, that that's been very clear from the beginning. And you've seen a lot of left leaning types come out and say, oh, my gosh, if we allow too much speech on Twitter, you know, that would be dangerous. <laughs> and it just goes <laughs> against the American ethos. Right. Which is that, you know, we let ideas duke it out in the public square that the answer to bad speech is always more speech, yep. not less. Yep. So you're you're very much seeing the type of top down censorship narrative control that the left would like to impose via Twitter that many times they often do impose via Twitter, and they and and there's very significant forces in this country that want that model to continue. Um, what are, what are some things you would like to see uh, Twitter uh, do to improve uh, their service? I mean, um, should they stop shadow banning, uh, deplatforming misinformation? What what would you like to see them do? So I have a whole article at The Federalist with a list of suggestions <laughs> for mm -hmm. Elon Musk should he take over over Twitter. You know, and I think it, it yes, it ranges from obviously, you know, replatforming all the people that they kicked off Twitter for, you know, saying masks don't work or that COVID leaked from a lab, things we now know were true, letting mm -hmm. those people back in. And yes, you know, halting this censorship of political ideas. Uh, and politicians themselves, but I think also structural changes to the company, right? Get the get the company out of the Bay Area. You know, a lot of the content moderation and censorship that we see at Twitter, if it's not nefarious, it comes from the fact 
that Twitter is staffed exclusively by left-leaning people, mm-hmm. right? Get, get the company out of a place where that's all the type of politics they encounter. Maybe hire from Texas or, you know, move your company to Phoenix or something like that. Um, you know, and Elon Musk has also speculated about um, making Twitter a more open source platform to allow people to develop filters that, you know, people can download to, to improve the Twitter experience that they want to have. So, for instance, I could download a filter that blocks all New York Times reporters and a liberal could do the same, right? Yeah. That type of curation might help Twitter be better for everyone. Hmm. Okay, Rachel, thanks so much. Good talking with you again, and uh, we'll make sure people are aware of your article, Six Ways Elon Musk Could Actually Improve Twitter. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Rachel Bovard, again, is Senior Tech Columnist at The Federalist and Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute.